Necessity and Sufficiency We often make the mistake of assuming that having some necessary conditions in place means that we have all of the sufficient conditions in place for our desired event or effect to occur. The gap between the two is the difference between becoming a published author and becoming J.K. Rowling. Certainly you have to know how to write well to become either, but it isn't sufficient to become a Rowling. This is somewhat obvious to most. What's not obvious is that the gap between what is necessary to succeed and what is sufficient is often luck, chance, or some other factor beyond your direct control. Assume you wanted to make it into the Fortune 500. Capital is necessary, but not sufficient. Hard work is necessary, but not sufficient. Intelligence is necessary, but not sufficient. Billionaire success takes all of those things and more, plus a lot of luck. That's a big reason that there's no recipe. Winning a military battle is a great example of necessity and sufficiency. It is necessary to prepare for the battle by evaluating the strength and tactics of your enemy and by developing your own plan. You need to address logistics such as supplies and have a comprehensive strategy that allows flexibility to respond to the unexpected. These things, however, are not enough to win the battle. Without them, you definitely won't be successful. But on their own, they are not sufficient for success. This concept is demonstrated in sport as well. To be successful at a professional level in any sport depends on some necessary conditions. You must be physically capable of meeting the demands of that sport and have the time and means to train. Meeting these conditions, however, is not sufficient to guarantee a successful outcome. Many hard-working, talented athletes are unable to break into the professional ranks. In mathematics, they call these sets. The set of conditions necessary to become successful is a part of the set that is sufficient to, be bec- to become successful. But the sufficient set itself is far larger than the necessary set. Without that distinction, it's too easy for us to be misled by the wrong stories. Second Order Thinking Barbara McClintock said, Technology is fine, but the scientists and engineers only partially think through their problems. They solve certain aspects, but not the total, and as a consequence, it is slapping us back in the face very hard. Second Order Thinking Almost everyone can anticipate the immediate results of their actions. 
This type of first-order thinking is easy and safe, but it's also a way to ensure you get the same results that everyone else gets. Second-order thinking is thinking farther ahead and thinking holistically. It requires us to not only consider our actions and their immediate consequences, but the subsequent effects of those actions as well. Failing to consider the second and third order effects can unleash disaster. It's often easier to find examples of when second order thinking didn't happen, when people did not consider the effects of the effects, when they tried to do something good or even just benign, and instead brought calamity. We can safely assume the negative outcomes weren't factored into the original thinking. Very often, the second level of effects is not considered until it's too late. This concept is often referred to as the law of unintended consequences for this very, very reason. We see examples of this throughout history. During their colonial rule of India, the British government began to worry about the number of venomous cobras in Delhi. To reduce the numbers, they instituted a reward for every dead snake brought to officials. In response, Indian citizens dutifully complied and began breeding the snakes to slaughter and bring to officials. The snake problem was worse than when it started because the British officials didn't think at the second level. Second-order effects occur even with something simple like adding traction on tires. It seems like such a great idea because the more you have, the less, rather, the more you have, the less likely you are to slide, the faster you can stop, and thus the safer you are. However, the second-order effect is that your engine has to work harder to propel the car you get worse gas mileage, releasing more detrimental carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and you leave more rubber particles on the road. This is why any comprehensive thought process considers the effects of the effects as seriously as possible. You're going to have to deal with them anyway. The genie never gets back in the bottle. You can never delete consequences to arrive at the original starting conditions. Margaret Atwood said, Stupidity is the same as evil if you judge by the results. In an example of a second-order thinking deficiency, we have been feeding antibiotics to livestock for decades to make the meat safer and cheaper. Only in recent years, have we begun to realize that in doing so, we have helped create bacteria that we cannot defend against. In 1963, the University Santa Barbara ecologist and economist Garrett Hardin proposed his first law of ecology, quote, you can never merely do one thing, unquote. We operate in a world of multiple overlapping connections like a web with many significant yet obscure and unpredictable relationships. We developed second-order thinking into a tool showing that if you don't consider the effects of the effects, 
you can't really claim to be doing any thinking at all. When it comes to the overuse of antibiotics in meat, the first order consequence is that the animals gain more weight per pound of food consumed, and thus there is profit for the farmer. Animals are sold by weight, so the less food you have to use to bulk them up, the more money you will make when you go sell them. The second order effects, however, have many serious negative consequences. The bacteria that survive discontinued antibiotic exposure are antibiotic resistant. That means that the agricultural industry, when using these antibiotics as bulking agents, is allowing mass numbers of drug-resistant bacteria to become part of our food chain. High degrees of connections make second-order thinking all the more critical because denser, denser webs of relationships make it easier for actions to have fear far-reaching consequences. You may be focused in one direction, but recognizing that the consequences are rippling out all around you. Things are not produced and consumed in a vacuum. John Moyer said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Second-order thinking is not a way to predict the future. You are only able to think of like the likely consequences based on the information available to you. However, this is not an excuse to power ahead and wait for post-facto scientific analysis. Could these consequences of putting antibiotics in the feed of all animals have been anticipated? Likely yes, by anyone who, with even a limited understanding of biology. We know that organisms evolve, they adapt based on environmental pressures, and those with shorter life cycles can do it quite quickly because they have more opportunities. Antibiotics, by definition, kill bacteria. Bacteria, just like all other living, being, living things, want to survive. The pressures put on them by continued exposure to antibiotics increase their pace of evolution. Over the course of many generations, eventually mutations will occur that allow certain bacteria to resist the effects of the antibiotics. These are the ones that will reproduce more rapidly, creating the situation we are now in. Second-order thinking teaches us two important concepts that underlie the use of this model. If we are interested in understanding how the world really works, we must include second and subsequent effects. We must be as observant and honest as we can about the web of connections we are operating in. How often is short-term gain worth protracted long-term pain?